0: All right, well, again, welcome. And uh, I'm really glad you guys are here this morning. My name's Aaron. I'm glad to have an opportunity to look with you into the scriptures today. And uh, we are just starting a series this summer on the book of Proverbs. So we started it last week. We're going to continue that today. If you have a Bible today, we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 16. Um, The way this series is structured and the way the book of Proverbs is structured, we're going to jump around quite a bit. So, today we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a hardback one under one of the seats in front of you. Grab that and turn to page 539. We're going to look at a couple of verses here in Proverbs 16 um, this morning. Proverbs is a book about wisdom, it's a book full of wisdom, and at the same time, it's a book that talks a lot about the idea of wisdom, what it is, how it functions what it means to us. Much of the book of Proverbs is written in the voice of a father speaking to his son. And I think it's probably helpful for us, as we read this, to think of this as children of a heavenly father. This is our true and perfect father speaking to us the wisdom that he wants us to know, that he wants us to see, that he wants us to make a part of our lives, to be able to experience a fuller and a richer and a deeper joy in life um, than, than we would on our own. And we're going to see that today. As you read through, and I hope you've been reading through Proverbs. Steve mentioned it last week. There are 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs, which sets itself up really well uh, for a reading plan. You just look at the calendar, and you just read that chapter for the day, Um, and if you're like, well, I haven't done that, I'm way behind, that's okay, um, because we're going to be in this book both in July and in August, so you'll just loop back around and you'll hit them all. So start today is the 22nd, so you would be in Proverbs chapter 22, good. Um, If you've been doing that, and if not, you can start it today or tomorrow, and here's what I hope you'll find. You're going to start to, as you read through, find some very specific ideas, some very specific wisdom about specific situations. Some of those are going to push on you in ways that you kind of like, I'm not so sure I agree with that. That goes against the way I normally think. That goes against the way that I normally function. There's a couple ways you can approach when that happens. Today, I want to look at kind of a general idea at the beginning of Proverbs chapter 16, That's going to help us say, what do we do when we bump up against something, whether it's in the book of Proverbs or elsewhere in the scriptures, when we bump up against something that kind of goes against the grain of the way we tend to think? Let's take a look at Proverbs chapter 16. We're going to read verses 1 through 3, and then we'll get into this. Proverbs chapter 16, here it is. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Word of the Lord. All right, so I have a question for you. Um, do you remember where you were on September 11th, 2001? Okay. If you are over the age of probably 25, I'm sure your answer would be immediately yes. And honestly, even probably some people younger than that might remember. You probably have a really specific, clear memory of that morning. I'll bet, honestly, I'll bet you've even told that story to other people before. You've had this conversation at some point over the last 17 years I remember September 11th. I remember and, and, so I was in college at the time and I remember walking across campus and a guy running out of a building and saying something to somebody else and this this kind of sense of what's he talking about and then I went to another class and a professor told us what was happening and I mean and I remember all these different details, right? I remember going back to my dorm and telling my best friend what was going on and I remember and you we all have stories like that, right? On September 11th, I remember this, I remember this, this is the person who told me, I remember seeing it here, I remember watching this, I remember... What if you're wrong? What if your memory of that morning is not accurate? Now you No, I remember, because that was such a huge event, right? Huge life-changing, earth-world-changing, however you want to say it. That was a, such a massive event. I remember exactly what happened. In fact, um, psychologists have a, a, a term for that type of event, for those types of memories. They call them flashbulb memories, because again, if you're over the age of 25, you might know what a flashbulb is. Um, that We used to have these things called cameras that weren't on our phone, and Did you ever have one of those that had the giant, like, silver things that stuck out the top? No, okay, I'm really feeling old now. But um, the flashbulb is the bulb that goes off to give extra light when you click the picture, okay? Um, Flashbulb memories are events that are so massive that it's like, boom, uh, when the event happens, our mind sears that image into our brains, that event into our brains, and our memory is locked in. However, studies have shown that our flashball memories are not as accurate as we believe them to be. As a matter of fact, and and I picked September 11th to start out um, as an example, because immediately after September 11th, a group of professors decided this would be the perfect opportunity to test out the idea of flashbulb memory because it was such a massive event. And it was the kind of event that when it happened, everybody knew this is huge. So they conducted the the largest ever longitudinal study on flashbulb memory, which means they interviewed a group of over 12 researchers, interviewed over 3,000 people about their memories of September 11th. Their first interviews were three days after the event occurred. And they asked them a series of questions. Where were you? Who told you about it? How did you feel? A series of questions about what was going on on the morning of September 11th. They followed up and asked them the exact same questions three months later, one year later, five years later, and ten years later. And here's what they found. After one year, the memories of the people they surveyed had changed by an average of 40%, meaning that only 60% of what they remembered a year later was what they remembered three days later. Four-tenths of what they were sure happened on that day changed in a year. However, at the same time, They also asked them how confident they were in those memories. Is this what happened? How sure are you? (laughs) And the score on confidence across the board, 98.5%. Almost 100% confidence, this is exactly what happened that day. I remember it. It was so huge. It was such a massive event. I know this is what happened. I'm absolutely dead set sure. And yet they were 40% wrong about what had happened. They would do things like change from I heard it in my kitchen to I heard it from a friend at a coffee shop. They would change things about what they did. I, I ran downstairs and out into the street. Some of the people they surveyed were actually in New York, and so people would say, you know, I ran downstairs out into the street and was looking around, and a year later, I immediately picked up the phone and called my mom. Their memories change, but they were one, almost 100% sure, no, this is exactly what happened. Reading through the study, my favorite quote, because they actually had some people write out when they were explaining what happened. They had them write out and sign, here's what happened. They showed somebody, you know, a year ago, this is what you wrote, and the person said, that's my handwriting, but I don't know why I wrote that, because that's not what happened. And then I've got to be honest, This, um, when I heard this and read about this, it bothered me a little bit because I've always been somebody who, um, and I guess this is repentance, this is pride, I've always taken some pride in my memory. I've always been somebody who's like, I have, I have this amazing memory, I know all these stories, I tell people stories about when I was in kindergarten, I remember everything, I remember all the details. I read this and I was like, what if all that great memory I have is totally wrong? <laughs> what if... What if all these things that I'm like, oh, I have such a great memory, it's really just stories I've made up in my head. What if, even when we're totally sure we're right, we actually cannot trust our own minds? And what if that's not just true of memories, but of everything that we think? What if all the confidence we place in our own minds, in our intellectual, emotional, internal processes, is misplaced? This is what Solomon's saying in Proverbs chapter 16. And he's warning us And he wants to make it clear to us that when we approach the idea of wisdom that the biggest problem most of us are going to encounter is not that we don't know what we should be doing. It's that we're going to convince ourselves that we're already going in the right direction even when we're not. In Proverbs sixteen two, he says, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. In other words, we have an uncanny ability to convince ourselves that what we are doing is correct. We have a way of assuring ourselves that we're making the choices we make for pure reasons. And even even when we lack confidence in our own abilities, even when we lack confidence in our own intelligence, we still assure ourselves our motives are pure. We convince ourselves that the reason we're doing things is true and is honest, All of the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. I see myself as heading in the right direction. I see myself as doing things for the right reasons. But look at the second half of the verse. But the Lord weighs the Spirit, which means this. God sees into us in a way that we do not see. And he knows us in a way we don't even know ourselves. And he understands our motivations... and our flawed reasoning, and the way we try to convince ourselves that what we want to do is what we ought to do. And God sees that, and he knows that, and he understands that. And when he speaks, he speaks outside of that in a way that's true, But we have in our hearts our own twisted motivations, and when we hear what he's saying, many, many, many times what he says sounds wrong. And then we go through mental gymnastics to convince ourselves that, no, we're right, and we're just misunderstanding what God's really trying to say because what he's really trying to say lines up with what we already want to believe. And we have a way of contorting, you could even say twisting God's Word to make it fit what we already believe and what we already want it to say. Our minds are really, really good at making sure we do what we already want to do. You're really good at talking yourself into pretty much any purchase you want to make, any relationship you want to be a part of, any conversation that you want to have, any activity that you want to do, your mind is really good at talking you into it and convincing you that it's a good idea. But God looks at us, and Solomon's reminding us here, that he sees beyond the surface level let's call them excuses, reasons, motivations that we create in our own minds and God sees something deeper. And it's really important that we understand what's at stake here. Skip down to verse 25, chapter 16. He says this, there's a way that seems right to a man but its end is the way to death. We convince ourselves, we assure ourselves that what we're doing and why we're doing it is correct. It seems right to us. But the path we're laying for ourselves is the path to destruction. We lie to ourselves, and we lie ourselves straight to our own ruin. Now, why do we do that? Now, normally, this would be the place um, where we talk about drilling down into our hearts and discovering our real motives, and that's good, and that's important, and I think it's good to think about that at times, that the lies we tell ourselves are covering up idols that are at work in our own hearts, that we have these false motivations that, that won't really bring us the peace we're seeking. We want approval, we want security, we want success, we want comfort. And identifying which of those really drives us a lot of the time is, is important. But in verse 3 of chapter 16, Solomon pushes us in a slightly different direction. And so that's where I want us to head this morning. With this understanding that we lie to ourselves, what does Solomon say we should do about it? Now, in order to illustrate this, I want to tell you a story. But understand that this story happened the summer after I graduated from high school, so it could be up to 40% inaccurate, okay? <laughs> this, is, this is the truth as I remember it, okay? Okay? I'm sure of the broader story, some of these details may be incorrect. That's my disclaimer. I'm sorry. The summer after I graduated from high school, I worked at Arby's. Um, Arby's, our slogan, we're still cleaner than McDonald's. Um, and uh, so I was working at Arby's. It was a slow day, and I working the drive through and so... When you work the drive-through at fast food on a slow day, anything out of the ordinary is like cause for celebration. And so, one of my best friends' dads came through the drive-through. So hey, somebody I know, and we're talking. And um, and as we're talking, he pays for his food with a twenty-dollar bill. And this is going to sound like a weird detail to remember, but you'll understand. It was it was like one of those pristine, crisp, like just from the bank kind of $20 bills, and then he goes, hey, by the way, I realized I never gave you a graduation present, and so he hands me a $20 bill, which was, again, one of those, you know, like brand new, and something i like, oh, he just went to the bank, he has some 20s, and so I go, thank you, that's, that's really great, and I was really appreciative, and I did what I used to do back then, um, when I was really good at money management, as soon as I got off work, I drove to uh, a store and bought a CD. Um, not, c- sorry, CD, not a certificate of deposit at a bank. I wasn't investing the money. Um, I was buying music. And um, so it, it was at this store called, it used to be a, a music and uh, entertainment store called Cue. I'm sure they've all shut down now. Um, I got to work the next morning. And we had these pens, these special pens, and the manager explained to me, so... Here's what's going on with these pins. Something really weird happened last night. When we made the bank deposit, we had a counterfeit $20 bill. Well, that's bizarre. That's interesting. Yeah, and OnQ had one as well. And I'm like, oh. Well, that's fascinating. <laughs> and so here's what we have to do from now on. Whenever you get anything, a 20 or larger, you have to take this special marker and you mark the bill, and it'll turn gold if it's real. And if it does anything else, it's probably, it's a counterfeit. It's not real money. Real money, when you mark it, it will turn gold. And so from then on, that's what we had to do. I, um, I didn't feel the need to pipe up and explain that I was probably the person who passed a counterfeit 20 at the music store, um, I assume there's a statute of limitations on those types of things, and so I'm sharing it with you this morning. (laughs) Uh, But here's the point of that story, in as far as it's 60% true. What we were supposed to do from then on was check to make sure that anything that we got in that was of value was true. And the way we checked it was by marking and knowing what that marker would do to a true $20 bill. They did not give us training on how to spot counterfeits. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but in the FBI, when they train agents to look for counterfeit money, they don't give them a lot of counterfeit money to look at. They give them real money to study. Because the more you become familiar with the properties of true money, in this case, then the easier and the quicker you will be at spotting a fake or forgery. Giving the, the agents in the FBI a whole bunch of forgeries to look at would not be very helpful. Even if they gave them fakes and real ones to compare, because when they bumped up against new counterfeits, the differences, the, the falsehood, the let's call them lies, would be different than what they'd encountered before. The only way to quickly identify falsehood is to be really, really familiar with the truth. Do you see where we're going with this? This is what Solomon's talking about in verse 3. Commit your work to the Lord. And your plans will be established. We lie to ourselves. We constantly, consistently, over and over present ourselves with counterfeit truth. We constantly give ourselves fake wisdom. We tell ourselves over and over again, this is the way to true happiness. This is the way to peace. This is the way to comfort. This is the way to security. And we don't recognize it because we become so immersed in our own lies that they start to sound very, very true. The solution is that we need to spend more time examining the truth. We need to immerse ourselves, not in our lies and trying to figure out how are we lying and why are we lying and what is this excuse that I'm making to try to convince me to do something look like and why am I... What we need to do is soak ourselves in the truth. And the beautiful thing about that is that what the Scripture teaches us is that the truth is a person. It's Jesus Christ. That Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the truth. Not not just that he speaks the truth, but he is the truth. That any claim to goodness or wisdom or righteousness or peace or anything good or true should be measured against Christ and who he is and what he's done. In verse 3, when he says, commit your work to the Lord, that that phrase commit your work um, is a translation Of a Hebrew uh, colloquialism that literally meant roll your works onto the Lord. Roll your works onto the Lord, meaning give everything, put the weight of everything, lay it all onto someone else, in this case, onto God. In other words, all of your plans, all of your decisions, all of your understanding, all of your wisdom, Put the weight of whether it's true or not onto him. Say, I don't know for sure what is true and what is false. Humble yourself enough to identify and to recognize that you lie to yourself and you're not very good at distinguishing the truth from the fact. And then say, but here's Jesus who is the truth I'm going to put the weight of all that decision-making on Him. We call that trust. What Solomon's talking about here is trusting God. To say that, look, (laughs) I'm not on my own capable of determining right from wrong, good from evil, wise from foolish. All I can do is take what you have said and who you are and just put all that weight, all that authority, all that decision-making ability on you and just follow you. I'm just going to obey you. See, with God, obedience and trust are two sides of the same coin. It's really easy for us to say that we trust in Jesus, in this sort of intellectual, um, apologetic, sort of, I believe this is true kind of a way. But to truly trust in God will lead you to obey what he asks you to do. And you can't really have one without the other. You can't really obey a God you don't trust. And at the same time, you can't really know what it fully means to trust God until you have to obey Him in a way that's difficult for you. It's easy to obey in ways that are already natural, right? There are certain things that you read them in the Scripture or you come across them in life, and they're just easy for you. You don't struggle with that. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the ones that you read it, you hear it, intellectually you kind of know it, but at the same time it's hard, and that's when your heart starts working really, really hard to give you the reasons that you don't need to do that. And we all have those, and we approach them in different ways, Most of us, what we do is we construct an explanation for why what we're doing is not actually what God's talking about there. Right? And we have very elaborate schemes to convince ourselves that, you know, when you break it down, really, this is different than what that's saying. But if you only obey God in the things that are easy for you to already do? How much trust does that take? How much reliance on Him does that require? Here's the thing about trust. We're talking about a God who loves you so much. He sacrificed His own Son to take the punishment that you rightly deserve, that you rightly deserve for every single time that you twist what he said to go your own direction instead of following him, and knowing that you would do that and will do that and continue to do that, knowing that, he said, I'm going to sacrifice Jesus Christ for you because of your perpetual Disobedience. I'm going to let him be tortured and die. That's how much he loves you. And by doing that, by taking that punishment, now you can know him. Now you can have a relationship with him. Now you can follow him. And that's not something you earn. And you don't earn it by obedience. And so here's the thing, when we talk about obedience, we have to be really clear. Obedience is not what we do to try to get God to love us. It's not us working to make Him approve of us. He already loves us. He already sacrificed for us. There are no strings attached to that love to enter into a relationship with him, we just need to trust. To trust in his sacrifice for us. And then out of that love for us, he says, if you want to have a fuller and richer and deeper experience of joy and of peace and of love in this life, then follow this way and he gives us wisdom and he says this is the path to deeper richer truer humanity and even in that his goal listen his goal is not for you to become a more moral person to become a better person his goal is for you to know him more deeply and more intimately And even as we try to follow and fail, we're reminded of our desperate need for Him. And as we fight against sin, as we actively say, this is what God calls me to do, and it goes against everything I want to do, everything within me wants to go in this direction, and God's saying go in this direction, and we have to fight To do it, we are reminded of our own weakness and our desperate need for strength from him. And he gives strength. And he reminds us of his grace and his love. And we're drawn again into a deeper relationship with him. Over and over and over again, our hearts lie to us. And they tell us specifically, many, many times, two lies. And they feed off each other, and they just keep perpetuating each other. Number one, they tell us that disobeying God will fulfill needs that truthfully only Christ can fulfill. But our hearts tell us, no, no, no. Go against what he's saying and there's joy. There's happiness. There will be the peace and the security and the contentment that you want. That's the direction you need to go in. And as we go in that direction, then the other lie comes up and the other lie is this. What you have done is too much. You have gone too far. Your sin is too great. No one will ever love you. And shame blooms in our hearts. Fear and guilt take over. We tell ourselves we could never be forgiven. We've severed our relationship with God. The only way to get back into a relationship with Him is to work harder, to do more, to try harder. And the lies just swirl around and around and around. Those are lies. Unfortunately, they're lies that you tell yourself. The truth is that our sin is destructive, that the path we would choose for ourselves leads to death. But God's grace is far, far greater than any sin that no matter what we have done, our God is willing and able to forgive and to love and to embrace us again. But we have to stop trusting in ourselves. We have to stop, as we're told over and over and over again, listening to our hearts. Instead, we need to know the truth. We need to know the one who is the truth. We need to roll our works onto him. We need to trust in him and him alone. Let's pray. In a moment, we'll share communion together. Heavenly Father, we love you. And we understand, we hear the words that say that you love us. But so often our hearts lie to us. They tell us that your love is conditional. They tell us that your love is not enough. They tell us that the path that you say leads to life will actually lead us to death when it's exactly the opposite that's true. God, we need renewed hearts. We need eyes opened to see you. We need ears open to hear your truth. We need hearts opened to believe you. So, God, will you please. Give us your wisdom. Will you please show us by your grace the true path to life? And please lead us to walk down that path by the grace and power of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray.